The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, April 13th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president, Donald J. Trump, has appointed a council to reopen America. It'll be uh, Mark Meadows, who's been on the job for two weeks. Steve Mnuchin, Larry Kudlow, Robert Lighthizer, Wilbur Ross, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, who's married to Ivanka Trump, who's the daughter of President Trump. This, by the way, the announcing of this council, that was the high watermark of competence for the Trump administration today because he used the White House briefing to play a campaign ad a campaign style ad, but let's just call it a campaign ad with music and graphics and news clips indicating that he's done a great job so far. Trump denied the ad was produced. That became a point of discussion in the briefing. I wouldn't call it produced. He said, eh, they just kind of put it together. So I am wondering what the council to reopen the American economy will produce. Certainly not a reopening of the American economy. Now, I want to be clear, what, there's so many councils flying around and committees and tasks, tasks force. This is not the Corona Task Force. That is headed by Mike Pence. And that is not the Corona Task Force that was headed by Alex Azar. I mean, actually it is, but they kicked Alex Azar out and they installed Mike Pence beginning of last month. This is also not the shadow Corona Task Force, which is Jared Kushner reading Alex Berenson's Twitter feed and working out in public his thoughts on federalism. So a lot of people were upset that the president's daughter and son-in-law are two-sevenths of the panel to reopen America. Realize that four-sevenths of that panel are his daughter and son-in-law and a guy who's been on the job for two weeks and an 82-year-old who predicted two months ago that China's coronavirus woes would, quote, help to accelerate the return of jobs to North America. Though to be fair, Wilbur Ross made that asinine prediction with maximum compassion. Well, first of all, every American's heart has to go out to the victims of the coronavirus. So I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. But the fact is... The fact is, Wilbur Ross said, could be good for us stateside. Ross did not factor in the possibility that COVID could also strike the U.S., which is one reason why he, an octogenarian, has reportedly been distancing himself from the rest of the cabinet and working out of his Palm Beach mansion, which is smart. Don't, don't begrudge him that. I'm glad Jared is on this task force, I gotta say, because if he wasn't, then there'd be some other shadow task force, which would undermine and thwart the task of this original task force. This task force is going to decide, of course, when the economy will reopen, which is exactly like the parents of a newborn baby boy looking down into their crib and instantly deciding which college he'll go to and what position he'll play on the varsity soccer team. Center halfback Bowden, and not until all the people stop dying, are the answers to the questions hanging in the air. On the show today... About this economy reopening, how seriously should we take that? But first, part two of my talk with Craig Rothfeld, who went from the world of finance to the inside of a prison cell to a business providing guidance and advice for others who face incarceration. His clients are scared, confused, and even desperate. Recently, Craig's business, which he talked about, yeah, recently Craig's business, which he talked about with me on Friday's show, got a boost or at least a lot of attention. He got word of a possible high-profile client. Perhaps you've heard of this guy. He's New York State inmate 31020001153, also known as 
Harvey Weinstein. And that discussion is up next. Craig Rothfeld worked on Wall Street, made a lot of money. Then, when the recession hit, continued to spend a lot of money, money that he wasn't necessarily entitled to. First barred from working in the financial services industry, then charged with crimes, Craig eventually pled guilty to what the DA called, quote, financial schemes built on deception and misrepresentations. He was remanded to state custody, spent time, too much time on Rikers Island and in a series of state correctional facilities. But inside, he figured out how to navigate and survive incarceration. And upon his release, he set up an unusual and it turns out much needed business as a prison consultant. Soon, a potential client came his way. And so I asked Craig, how did this part of your career play out? How did you even first hear that Harvey Weinstein might be in need of your services? Great story. And it's a story that applies to all of us, all walks of life, totally steeped in you never know who knows who, always treat people the right way, you know, on your way up, on your way down. I had been retained by a client who was already at Ulster Correctional Facility, the reception center. You know, I, I can get retained at all different various points, which we can get to later. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was retained by the client. And that client on his bus ride from Rikers to Ulster was shackled to another gentleman. So they had an instant bond. And three days later, that gentleman hired me. So the client that I got came through my attorney, which is a natural source of referrals. The other person, I had no idea who he was, and I got referred by another inmate. And that person's attorney happened to be Arthur Idala. And Arthur and I uh, developed a relationship because I needed him for the parole report. I stayed in touch with him as I built my practice. Yeah. And what had happened was as they were winding down closing arguments in the Weinstein case, I had just gotten my third person approved for parole. So I sent an email out to all the criminal attorneys that kind of on my listserv list explaining what had happened and different things they should consider for their current clients. And Arthur responded to me in an email and said, I'm sure you know I'm on the Weinstein case. Call me tomorrow at 3 p.m. You know, we need you. So in a way, it's a classic case of it's not what you know, it's who you're shackled to. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. It's who you're shackled to. Absolutely. But it just goes to show you, Mike, right? That line works even in prison. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Your clients up to this point, had they mostly done all done financial crimes? Because Weinstein's a rapist. I mean, is that crime different from the crimes of most of your clients up to that point? Yes, it is. And a lot goes into when you make the decision to retain someone. But most of the clients that I had and the crimes that they were convicted of were either white collar, nonviolent crimes, some were alcohol-related crimes, you know, DWIs and DUIs. But this was the first time I was retained by someone who, if convicted and if they went in, was going in for what would ultimately be a violent crime. Tell me about the ethical considerations, if any, that went into accepting uh, Weinstein as a client. A lot did. You know, there's no particular order to this, but, you know, I protect their privacy a lot, but I, I have two young daughters and I talked with them for obvious reasons, spoke with my spouse. This potentially had implications for the whole family. And I spoke to a lot of friends, professional colleagues on a horizontal level and, mm-hmm. and mentors about what it all meant and what it would mean to accept it, what it would mean in people's eyes, so on and so forth. And surprisingly, almost everyone came down in the same way, which is that 
if you want to do this for a career, you don't get to choose necessarily. A lot of people pointed out to me that public defenders who are admired by everyone are representing, you know, murderers Mm -hmm. and no one's taking their inventory. You know, he's not my friend, right? I didn't know him at that point. It's not family. The biggest reason I had originally got into this, Mike, was for the families. I mean, the families do the time right along with you. I mean, I'd argue sometimes it's harder on the families than it is on the inmate. And, you know, someone very close to me said, Harvey's got a family. He's got children. He's got ex-wives. He's got a family too. And they're innocent victims. And the family deserves this as much as any other family. And that really resonated with me. And then, look, if I wanted to do this, you don't say no professionally, at least in my opinion. I mean, being invited to arguably the biggest dance, they don't often happen. It may never happen again. And, you know, I'm very candid about it. So I think I put all those inputs together and I made the decision to do it. I would also think that, A, it just helps to be agnostic as far as you could be on the crimes that were committed. And sometimes maybe, you know, there is a phenomenon of false conviction. Doubtful that that happened in the Weinstein case. But it just helps, I would think, to do what you do to be really not judgmental about the actual crimes. And the second point would be if you think what you're doing is a good thing, not only for yourself, but your clients, having Weinstein as a client is very helpful to the business. It lets other people know what you're doing. You got a lot of press, like, say, being interviewed on the gist. So I would think those two things would add up to taking him on as a client and the considerations of if he is or isn't a horrible man is not something to totally discount, but perhaps outweighed by the other two considerations. I agree. Someone said to me, look, this is your business. You're putting food on the table for your family. I mean, the two things I would tell you in regards to who I spoke to is, you know, I met with my rabbi yeah, and we had a long, hard talk about it. And, you know, we talked about it in terms of just being friends. I talked about it in terms of him being a rabbi. I talked about it in terms of the Talmud. I mean, what it means and whether people deserve second chances. Um, And I also spoke with uh, Rabbi Moshe Frank, who is the rabbi for Eastern Correctional Facility, which is a maximum security prison, and Ulster. I had spent eight weeks, twice a week with Rabbi Frank, and he's still a dear friend, and he works for the Department of Corrections. And I also spoke with Dan Court. Dan might be someone you know. Dan is you know, New York State Assemblyman. He's running for district attorney of Manhattan. He's someone that I support. He's a great guy. And I'm doing a lot of work for him. And you know, I talked to Dan about it just from a legal standpoint and what it is to be an attorney. And it's not about taking inventory of the crimes. It's not about making it personal. It's also about the fact that once you're convicted and you go to prison, doesn't everybody deserve a second chance? I mean, isn't forgiveness one of the bedrocks of what we're all about and what humanity should be about. So a lot went into it, Mike. It yeah. wasn't a flippant decision. Or if you think the prison system is in some ways unjust or horrible, the justice should be confinement, right? The justice isn't as articulated in the law. It isn't, oh, you'll have these deprivations visited upon you, or you know, maybe you'll be actually, someone will be violent with you, right? That's not justice. So if you could help someone avoid that, you're not perpetuating an injustice. You're actually, in a way, perpetuating justice. Yes, that's right. New York State Department of Corrections, the facilities, and this is not about the people who work there. They're very fine people who work in Department of Corrections. They're horrible. You know, these are old prisons run on budget and government funding. You know, it really is. It's my line that people hear a lot. It's a Byzantine black hole. Do you have any, um, like, non-disclosure or things you can't say about talking with uh, Weinstein? I do. 
all questions can be asked. And if I can't answer, I won't answer. But uh, I do have a, a non-disclosure. I am also one of the authorized healthcare proxies for him as part of the legal defense team. So, you know, there are certain things I can't answer, but yeah. um, I'm happy to answer, you know, what I can. So how is he different? You take away who he is, his notoriety and what he did. How is he different from the other 20 clients you've had? He's Harvey Weinstein. I mean, right. that's the first thing. I mean, he's the most famous client I had. Well, first of all, he has more pre-existing medical conditions than any other client I have. He's the oldest client I have by a long shot. He is world famous. He would shock me if he was ever in general population. So you're dealing with a different path and road than the ordinary inmate would experience in a medium or a maximum security prison. So that is a big factor. So just dealing with the fact that he may be in protective custody. I mean, now he's currently in a hospital unit. He has pre-existing medical conditions, makes this, you know, incredibly different than just dealing with your ordinary client. And we are in the post-Jeffrey Epstein era right now. The Department of Corrections doesn't want anyone dying on their watch. They're not rooting for people to get sick and, and die. This is a totally different sort of journey and path as a result of his fame, as a result of his age, as a result of his medical, as a result of having to protect him. This is a project for the Department of Corrections. They have a lot on their plate. Not being in gen pop. So what would his special protective custody, what's the general term for that? Adult protective custody units, APCU is a common term, or just protective custody. Is it better or worse to be? Because I think a lot of people heard, oh, he's not in the general population. He's in protective custody. People are driven by the fact that they generally hate Harvey Weinstein. But people said, oh, that's unfair. He's getting off better. What's your assessment? Is it better to be in one or the other? No one's getting off better, right? I mean, anyone who says he's getting off better, you know, I, I don't think volunteer to go spend some time in a super maximum security prison. I mean, you're in prison. That's it. You lost your freedom. Okay? You, you don't get to choose. You get told what to do every single day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't even do things you need to do, like go to the bathroom when you want to go to the bathroom. So there's no special treatment. You know, the, this notion that because he's in a regional medical unit means he's better off. So what are you saying? You'd rather be disabled and have spinal stenosis and have had a heart procedure? I mean, that, that's what you call special treatment. And protective custody, you're still in a jail cell. I mean, it's not like, you know, you're, this is the four seasons. He's just in a different wing where there's a lot higher and tighter security. But it's not like he's got a better jail cell and extra accommodations and the food is better. That's just people being salacious and wanting to, you know, sell papers. That's all it is. Will he have fewer interactions with other inmates there? The part of it where people called you Google and there seemed to be some bonding, will that be afforded to him, that chance? That opportunity is afforded to everyone. It'll just be afforded to him with a much lower number of people. General population by its nature means that you are exposed to a much greater degree of inmates and interaction. And granted, it's very different in medium security than max. Maximum security prisons, you're in a cell. They don't necessarily have day rooms where you can congregate. In mediums, you can congregate. In the maximum, you're congregating is either at your vocation, your job, or, or in the yard. If you're in protective custody, the amount of people that are in protective custody is you know 90% less. And if you're in a hospital, it's 98% less. So yeah. yes, he'll have the opportunity to speak with other people, but not at the degree or numbers that he would have used in general population. 
were his questions and concerns to you different from what your other clients would ask you and be concerned about? Many of them were the same. What is it like? People want to know about the bus ride. I often call it the first 90 days. What is it like to be powerless and have that feeling of loneliness? How do you get on the phone? How do you get commissary? You know, can you send emails, which now you can in the Department of Corrections? What about clothing? What about books? He had all the same questions that everybody else did. As is well documented, as well known, Mr. Weinstein maintains his innocence. There's an appeal that's been filed. So there will be an appeal process in New York State. There is pending litigation in LA, all which is known. So he has a higher degree of legal needs than my other clients do because he still has open and ongoing litigation. So that needs to be addressed because being able to talk to your lawyers is a fundamental right. But getting phone time is not, I mean, you're afforded phone time, but that's not necessarily a fundamental right. So, you know, that's a very specific thing that we've needed to deal with. When he asked about powerlessness, yes, I mean, look at you, you were doing well on Wall Street and quote unquote on top of the world, or at least doing well on Wall Street. And I'm sure some of your other clients had different degrees of power, but this is Harvey Weinstein and his degree of power is some somewhat hard to fathom. How did you answer his question? Brutal honesty, blunt honesty. And uh, the first time I met him and, you know, he's been very good to me. Uh, we have a very respectful relationship. I, I said, Mr. Weinstein, if you want me to tell you what you want to hear, it has been an incredible honor to meet you. I'm going to shake your hand and I'm going to walk right out the door because I am never going to be the guy that's going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear and you're not going to like it a whole lot of times. And that's been the nature of our relationship. And sometimes I have to say things, you know, a couple of times it's a very, it's a very dark place. You really lose all your power. And yes, certainly he achieved power and prestige and success at a level that you and I will probably never know. So anyone who's gone through it all ends up kind of at the same bottom. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult for anybody. You talk to your clients while they're in prison. Have you talked to him since he's been behind bars? Yes. And it's been reported he was diagnosed with uh, coronavirus. Do you know how he's doing with that? So, you know, we issued a statement and I'm sure you, like everybody else, has been incredibly respectful. It's amazing. I got no, literally no follow-up calls when uh, his press secretary, myself, and author Idal issued a statement. And besides the fact that we would want to protect his privacy and his health condition privacy, you know, due to the HIPAA laws, we can't comment on that. So we can neither confirm nor deny that he did or did not have COVID-19. Yeah. I want to point out that the Department of Corrections never said that he had COVID-19. The people that were reporting he had it were part of the Corrections Officers Union. Mm -hmm. um, so neither his legal defense team, of which I'm a part, or the Department of Corrections has ever said that he's had it. That all being said, he's in very poor health, but he's in as good of poor health as he can be in right now. That's all. You know, he's being monitored every single day. He did have a heart operation at Bellevue. That's true. Uh, his medical issues are documented. And, you know, there's a reason he's in a hospital. From your conversations with him, does, does he reflect to you that what you guys talked about is more or less what's been coming to pass? Yes. He knew he had heard it enough from me. And, you know, even if he has to hear it once or twice on a call, which is not about him, it's anyone. It's hard to process in there, Mike. I mean, it, it, you yeah. wake up and you're like, where am I? This is like the Bermuda Triangle. It's, it's brutal. So, um, 
Yes, and he understands and he comprehends. Not about Harvey, but just in general, are you, your clients, very worried about how the correctional system is going to handle the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is we're worried about the coronavirus. I think it's unfair to pin it on the correctional facility and more than it would be to pin it on anyone else. Mm -hmm. I'm stunned that something like this hasn't happened in the prison systems already, whether it's COVID or some other pandemic or epidemic. Very worried. I don't use this word loosely or often. It'll be a miracle if there aren't thousands of deaths inside the New York state prison system from COVID-19. None of that because of the Department of Corrections, just the setup. You're confined. It's prison. They're old. It's a Petri dish. They don't have the proper sanitizing soap. For instance, during, during flu season, it hit prisons hard. Yeah, people get sick all the time, but you don't have, it doesn't need to be flu system. I mean, people are getting sick in the middle of the summer with 75 degrees. I mean, yeah. forget about social distancing before it even became a thing. I mean, people just cough on foods. I mean, you don't know what anyone's doing. You know, right, you right. know, you don't know if people are just coming and wiping their germs on your locker. I mean, it's, it's a horrible, disgusting place, Mike. And um, which is why it's incredible that something like this hasn't really ripped through the prison system before. So the feds are reporting numbers more freely. I'm not saying what's right or wrong here, but again, I think it'll be a miracle if, you know, a thousand people or more don't die inside the New York State Department of Corrections. In some ways, you're the best person to ask, and in some ways, you're very, maybe you have your own motivations, but I want to ask you if you think Rikers should be shut down. Oh, yeah, Rikers needs to be shut down, yeah. I say that just from a humanity standpoint. Well, why is it so much worse? There probably in the current system has to be that sort of uh, transitional facility where people are near New York City and before they go upstate. So what about Rikers makes it so terrible? No particular order. It's completely unsanitary and unhealthy. It's ripe for all sorts of disease and infection. That's one reason it needs to be shut down. I mean, there are cracks in the walls and the floor. There's flooding all over the place, which further makes it unsanitary. Mice run freely in the dorms. Nice feces are all over the place. There's the sanitary situation with bathrooms is non-existent. Just the way it's all set up is ripe for violence. I mean, the amount of violence that goes on in there and corruption that goes on there could be limited in an alternate facility. It's barbaric, Mike. It is truly barbaric being in there. And if you get one hour of sunlight a day, that's it. That's the most you can get. There's no gym facilities. There's no rec facilities. It's cruel and unusual punishment by every definition of how you can define it. Last question. Having your background, have you been dealing with quarantine? Uh, better than most, I would I think. Assume. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I say it a lot. I mean, it's all perspective. I mean, it, Mike, it takes a lot to get me going. When you sleep next to someone who has a shiv under their bed, it's very different. Look, I'm no different than anyone else. I mean, I get a little jumpy sometimes. I have taken walks to Central Park just to get fresh air. But I know how to live life a day at a time. I know how to live life an hour at a time. I know how to chunk my time and goalpost my time. And so... While I don't recommend it to anybody going to prison, while it certainly wasn't on my original bucket list, it has provided me an opportunity to change as a human being in ways that I wouldn't have changed. And it's provided me with life skills that I wouldn't have ordinarily had. Craig Rothfeld is the founder, proprietor of Inside Outside LTD, a prison consulting service. Craig, thanks. Oh, I wonder if this takes on a different valence, but thanks so much for your time. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) It's time on the outside. It's free time. You're uh, 
You're welcome. You know, I'll close you with this. At the time, like when I went to visit him at Bellevue, the favorite thing I got to say to the guards was, uh, I'm fine as long as the gates open and I can walk back out. So you're very welcome. <laughs> And now the spiel. When can the economy reopen? Similar to the question, when can we get sociology going? Or what's the date when we could get public opinion to like me? Or how shall we as a people achieve handsomeness? Because the economy is a concept. It's a concept that describes the sum total of business inputs and outputs. We didn't even have this concept more than a couple hundred years ago. We all know to some degree that when people talk about the economy, what they mean. And what they mean is the general trend of production, economic production, making money. So the committee, the council to reopen the economy reminds me less of a panel tasked with achieving a thing that's possible and more like a combination of J.K. Rowling's Ministry of Magic and a little bit of this Bruce Springsteen lyric. So I said to them, hey there, mister, why ain't you hiring me? Your folks are the council to reopen the economy. It's all so very stupid. As if seven people can decree the economy is now open. What is this? Soviet lampshade factory number seven? We shall make orange lampshade. Citizen will buy orange lampshade economy reopen. You know who's going to decide this? The states, the governors, mostly. They'll get input from mayors, local officials, their health officials, because they got to decide what's right for them because they have the levers to actually, quote, reopen the economy. They'll look at the pandemic spread in their state. They'll look at their state's economic needs. They'll take into account local expertise. And this is very important. They'll rely on the fact that as governors, they care about all their people, not just the part of their electorate that only counts because of some crazy electoral college system at play. So set against this backdrop that there is an economy that can be reopened by seven people, that there is a date when that economy can reopen, and that these are the seven people to do so. I mean, let's just take a second, by the way, I'm going to interrupt myself to call this a turducken of ridiculousness, those three wacky assumptions. But set against this, this backdrop, we had Scott Hahn, head of the FDA, making the rounds of the Sunday shows. And the hosts, certain hosts to different degrees, gave credence to the ridiculous idea, the turducken of the ridiculous idea, that this committee, this date, this economy can be reopened, snip, snip, ribbon falls, release the doves, you got an economy again. Now remember, it had been floated that May 1st would be the date for the economy to reopen. So here was Han on This Week, ABC's This Week, hosted This Week by Martha Raddatz. So, so given what you know... Sorry, sorry, sir. Given, given what you know, is May 1st a good target when you look at it now? Martha, it is a target. Um, and obviously, we're hopeful about that target. But I think it's just too early to be able to tell that. A target. But a target that's not actually being targeted is the target. How would that, by the way, work in an archery tournament? Would many arrows be fired at that so-called target? Would any hit it? Best to move on, right? But Chuck Todd did not. Chuck Todd Ask the question a few ways. The president would like to lift social distancing guidelines uh, on May 1st. 
Is that timeline at all realistic in the next three weeks? The answer to that, that was the original question, was we're really looking at this from a balanced approach. Han went on to say, it has to be balanced with all the other issues that have to be taken into account as we move forward. In other words, come on, we all know May 1st is a crazy thing. The guy at the top says, let us move on. But Chuck Todd wouldn't. Uh, May 1st. Is that a real is that a realistic date or not? Or should Americans plan for a lot longer than May 1st? Or Chuck Todd couldn't. All right. It sounds like May 1st is more. It sounds like more aspirational than not a real target. It's not. The virus is real. The task force and sounds about reopening on a specific date that is not real. And it's good that it's not real. Let me say this. We should not be sending workers to slaughter based on a calendar date as opposed to how many people are actually dying of coronavirus. So it does seem that the White House actually is uninclined to have many, many more people killed, blessedly so, but please stop wasting our time with phony dates that will be deemed aspirational once it's clear that the pandemic has not abated. Stop with the issuing of optimistic dates that you can call optimistic, that you could call hopeful, because what we're facing is a phenomenon entirely unaffected by anyone's hopes or wishes or optimism. Steve Hahn, FDA commissioner, by the way, was named in a large New York Times story, no, not the Red Dawn story, one two weeks ago as pretty much or a large reason for the lack of testing. The title was The Lost Month, How a Failure to Test Blinded the U.S. to COVID-19. Let me read you the Steve Hahn references, Dr. Stephen Hahn's. First day as FDA commissioner came just six weeks before Alex Azar declared a public health emergency on January 31st. It would fall to the newly arrived Dr. Hahn to help build a national capacity for testing by academic and private labs. A little while further, but Dr. Hahn took a cautious approach. He was not proactive in reaching out to manufacturers and instead deferred to his scientists following the FDA's often cumbersome methods for approving medical screening. A little later, even though researchers around the country quickly began creating tests that could diagnose COVID-19, many said they were hindered by the FDA's approval process. The new tests sat unused in labs around the country. The article talked about Stanford University, where, quote, the Stanford Clinical Lab would not begin testing coronavirus samples until early March when Dr. Hahn finally relaxed the rules. So maybe instead of May 1st, they could have spent their time reading some of those sentences, followed by, have you improved the process, Dr. Hahn? Looking back, is there anything else you could have done? Or maybe a very mean, how many people would you estimate died because of the hurdles? your agency kept in place? I think questions like those would have been better than obsessing about May 1st. Of course, questions like those would have targeted Steve Hahn, though in this case, the targeting would be accurate. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the JIT's associate producer. She wonders if given today's current sensitivities, would May West be a realistic star? May West, realistic or aspirational? Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, is chairing the committee to reopen Sharper Image. He needs a massage chair with a built-in desk set, and he figures that retailer would have been perfect for his needs. The GIST, that guy without a mask who coughed on us, isn't just some inconsiderate asshole. He's actually the committee to unreopen America. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.